0: On the Talkback Show, on the radio, or whatever audiovisual device you choose to use. Welcome to the GBC Podcast, where we talk about the Packers and our hometown of Green Bay. This is episode 70, created on January 17th, 2024. I'm John. I'm in Appleton, Wisconsin. Along with me, Jeff in Minnesota and Neil out on the East Coast. Say hello, gentlemen, and tell us what you're drinking.
1: Foundation Brewing Company is a perfect beer for the mood that I'm still in. I am drinking an Afterglow. IPA, because I'm still in a Packers Cowboys afterglow.
2: And I'm having wild turkey, rare breed, old fashioned.
0: All right. And I took Jeff's lead of the Chocolate Bailey's. I made a chocolate martini. You can find us on YouTube and Twitter at Green Bay Chat and Facebook at the GBC podcast, Green Bay Chat. And just the audio is available on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify by searching for Green Bay Chat. Our topic this episode, we are going to be previewing the divisional round matchup in San Francisco. And yes, we'll talk about all of the other games that happened wild card weekend. We have a Packer player of the past and some history for you. We spent some time just a couple of days ago talking about the big victory in Dallas. We found out that the San Francisco head coach started preparing for the Green Bay Packers midway through the second quarter of the Packers-Cowboys matchup. and Now we are getting ready to go there. Saturday night in San Francisco, Packers, Niners, one versus seven. What do you guys like about this matchup?
2: What do I like about it? I like that we're in it. That's what
1: I like. (laughs) You also like that you picked it correctly, Jeff. This has already been mentioned three times. We need to keep beating (laughs) a dead horse on this one. Yes, Jeff. We got to let him have have a little bit more.
2: So a seven and a one. That's never happened before. I like the fact that we're still playing with house money. I like the fact that Vegas isn't giving us a chance in hell because uh, we're nine point underdogs currently. So what have we got to lose?
1: What we have to lose is to lose to a really talented San Francisco 49ers team. And I I don't mean to be a Debbie down right off the bat. Of course, I'm very excited about all of the different things. And I'm going to talk about the Packers positives in a bit, but in the end, there's a lot of talent on this team. And I think the one thing that, to me, is most compelling for the San Francisco 49ers is not what they've done over the course of the year, though that is certainly impressive. It's a fact that they clearly are playing with a chip on their shoulder after what happened to them last year. And they want to go back and have an NFC championship game where they have a quarterback and go to the Super Bowl because they certainly look to be the team of destiny last year to go to the Super Bowl. They lost that. And there's something to be said about a team that is playing with a focus. And I think, unfortunately, for the Packers, the San Francisco 49ers have shown a focus all year. And I certainly think the Packers can win, but I think the San Francisco 49ers talent plus their focus is going to be very tough to overcome.
0: It's, Kind of what we said last week, too. We looked at this Dallas team, and we picked apart the offense, the defense, the special teams, and how much they played better in the regular season. We picked apart individual players and how the Dallas team had strengths in all of the various positions. And and San Francisco is playing out the same way. We can look at the strengths of their individual position players and how they have played the season, but what it comes down to is they play the game on the field, not on paper.
1: Yeah, unfortunately for the Packers, though, Kyle Shanahan is no Mike McCarthy. So we've got that disadvantage as well this week.
2: This will be the 10th postseason meeting between Green Bay and San Francisco. And any Green Bay quarterback not named Aaron Rodgers has actually had pretty good success against San Francisco. But obviously there's a lot of things that are different. Players are different. But historically, Green Bay has played San Francisco quite well I know and in building through the 90s San Francisco served as sort of the stepping stone for Green Bay's progress Green Bay had to vanquish to get where they needed to go the same is true you know 25 years later you know what they've got a great chance and I agree with Neil in that I think the 49ers are more focused and they they were a lot closer last year than Dallas was obviously they're still the favorite the pressure is still on them to perform, to get to the Super Bowl. And my kind of final thought on this is that I think the winner of this game will be the representative of the NFC in the Super Bowl.
1: I would say one big difference, though, between this 49ers team and, for example, the 49ers teams that we played and beat in 95 and then subsequently 96-97. That 95 team was the defending Super Bowl champs. They were playing – as a team that knew that they were the best. This current San Francisco team, on the other hand, does not have that level of success. They've been to the Super Bowl a number of times in recent years. They've never won it, but they certainly have a large amount of experience. And I think this is going to come down to, is this a team that is going to feel the pressure because they keep thinking that they're going to get over that hump and eventually be a Super Bowl champ? Or is the pressure of not having done it several times in recent years going to get to them?
0: Well, this is a team that finished with a 12 and 5 record. They played eight games against playoff teams throughout the season. They had a five game winning streak and a six game winning streak during the season. In the middle of that, there's a three game stretch back in October that you look at and you just wonder what in the world happened. <laughs> uh, Cleveland Browns, they lost 19 to 17. Then at Minnesota, a 22 to 17 loss against the Vikings. And then the Cincinnati Bengals, 31-17 loss at home before going into their bye week. They recover from that with a six-game winning streak. But then the last three games of the season, kind of interesting. The last game, losing to the Rams, not a big deal. They had the one seed ready to go. They probably didn't put everything on the field for that game. But in week 16, Christmas Day, at home, they lose to the Baltimore Ravens, 33-19. to 19. L- Losing day- is
1: underestimating what's happened in that game, too. They got demolished by the Ravens in that game.
0: And I think when you look at the way the Browns and the Ravens played the 49ers, it's evidence that a strong defense is going to take care of the San Francisco 49ers. Now, we haven't really used strong defense <laughs> to describe the Green Bay Packers this season. But things have changed lately. Have they changed enough for the Packers defense to handle this 49ers offense?
1: And the other question, go, going back to that Ravens game, they've had a number of other weak games in that period. So obviously, bye week last week, the week before, lost the Rams. Yes, they didn't play their starters, but we know that sometimes resting your starters the final week of the season, then going on a bye does not lead to teams playing at their best at the beginning of the playoffs. They beat a bad commanders team the week before, lost to the Ravens the week before that, and beat the Cardinals the week before that. I mean, who have they challenged and beaten? They've got essentially five weeks in a row where they have played one good team and that one good team destroyed them. Are they going to be playing with a lack of fluidity that's going to give us opportunities? That certainly is one of the things that we are hoping for.
0: But a couple of the playoff teams that they did play in particular November 19th beating Tampa Bay 27 14. And winning at Philadelphia on December 3rd, 42-19, a game that probably started the slide there for the for the Eagles, nonetheless, but showing how well this 49ers team can play against
1: good teams. Well, let's talk about their skilled players then at this point, because they've had really good players essentially everywhere on the offense. Brock Purdy was easily the best quarterback in the NFL as far as yards per attempt. Brock Purdy, 9.6 yards per attempt. Second best was two at 8.3 yards per attempt. 31 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. So numbers that are basically in the ballpark of where Jordan Love was on the season and a 111.4 quarterback rating on the season. Those are tough numbers to beat. And you take that combined with all of the other talent they have on that team. And I'm not saying it starts with the quarterback because I don't think it starts with the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, but they've got a quarterback who can put the parts together and he's more than a game manager for sure, but he's certainly capable of pulling those pieces together. And that's our starting point for where we have to put pressure on Brock Purdy in order to get a little bit of breakdown as far as that offense is concerned.
2: In the games that they lost, a lot of it was on Purdy where he was getting a lot of pressure and he was just chucking it up and lots of interceptions, lots of turnovers, for the most part, uncharacteristic um, throughout most of their season. But man, when they had some turkeys, they really had some turkeys. They haven't really had that much in terms of being tested over the last month plus. So maybe a little rust, maybe a little, we're the number one seed, a little complacency. Who knows? But I go back to Green Bay. They're more than happy to be there, and I think once the Green Bay offensive line can keep Jordan Love upright, Aaron Jones has been just unbelievable over the last month or so. That's huge. The Christian McCaffrey-Aaron Jones kind of matchup, whose defense is going to be able to stop each of those running backs. And then can Green Bay get pressure on Brock Purdy force them into some bad throws, bad decisions, throw it up. And I think turnovers probably are going to really be huge in this game. And it's not going to be like a one or two turnover game. I'm thinking that there's going to be probably three, four turnovers total in this game. And whoever wins the turnover battle probably is going to win the game.
1: There's one other statistic that's interesting. As far as the 49ers are concerned, they've been a very front running team this entire season. Their point differential is very high and the result of this is that they have not thrown the ball anywhere near as much as a lot of other teams have. And they face a lot of throws from the opposing quarterback. So you look at the raw sack numbers on the year, and Brock Purdy was sacked 28 times. Jordan Love was sacked 30 times. Now, Jordan Love did really well. The Packers have been one of the best as far as avoiding sacks. In theory, Brock Purdy has been better than that, except Brock Purdy actually threw the ball 140 fewer times than Jordan love threw the ball this year. They've been able to basically build a lead and not have to throw that ball. And so if you look at sack percentages on dropbacks, Brock Purdy is sacked on 5.9% of his dropbacks versus only 4.9% for Jordan love. And so he is getting sacked at a higher frequency than Jordan love by a fair margin. And how many of these numbers that they have in the season are an artifact of them being so overall good that the overall game planning of both teams has changed compared to a normal game that is tight right until the end.
2: Neil, you had me at raw sack for starters.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the of, of the games that, you know, you're going to look at, I think that the blueprint is in the Baltimore Ravens game. The Ravens, as Neil noted, had San Francisco on their heels for that game. And to your point, Jeff, the way this game on Saturday is going to go is the wheels are going to fall off for one of the two teams. And once it does, I think back to the the Brett Favre six interception game in St. Louis. It could be that bad for the Packers if if the wheels fall off for them and it, and they can't get anything clicking. The defense isn't gelling, or the defense has reverted to midseason form, so to speak. But the same can be said for San Francisco, and it shows in that Ravens game. A little pressure goes a long way. Playing strong defense is going to throw them off of their game, and. There is that opportunity, but Green Bay does have to play flawless football on Saturday. Yeah, I'm wondering if it's going to be more of a track meet.
2: You know, I mean, the over-under on this game is 50 and a half. And I'm thinking this could be like that Arizona playoff game, right? So, you know, between turnovers and sort of the last team to have the ball, they may, the, right. may be the ones to win the game. I think it's going to be a pretty high-scoring game, even if the weather, or maybe a chance of rain or not, but it's good football weather, if even if it doesn't rain. I think it's probably going to be a pretty high-scoring game because both of these offenses can, it's at some point, move at will. And I I expect to see a lot of that.
1: The explosive nature of the San Francisco offense is certainly something that we have to be concerned about. And the game plan that San Francisco's offense is going to have is very similar to what we saw for the Packers against Dallas in that you can attack the opposing defense with any of a number of different weapons. And Christian McCaffrey obviously is the biggest of those weapons between his rushing and receiving yards. He had over 2000 total yards on the season. He had 21 total touchdowns on the season, but you can't just focus on Christian McCaffrey because Brendan Ayuk had 1342 yards receiving averaging 17.9 yards per reception. George Kittle averaged 15.7 yards per reception. And Devo Samuel also averaged 15 yards per reception. Collectively, they added up to 20 touchdowns. They've got a series of different extremely explosive playmakers that are going to be a real challenge for that Packers defense. A lot
0: of offense, Neil, but this defense, they've got some big Nick energy. Nick Bosa, what else does this defense bring? in san francisco
1: what it brings more than anything is interceptions. so on the season san francisco's defense had 22 interceptions that is tied for first in the nfl again contrasting with the packers 31st rank with set only seven interceptions on the season, and it's spread out between a number of different defenders. But clearly, their best pass defender is charvinus Ward with five interceptions, which ranks him fourth. He also leads the NFL with 23 passes defensed on the season. He's at it. They've they have a number of people, other people obviously that are getting interceptions. I was actually surprised by the sack numbers for. <laughs> Sorry, I was surprised. <laughs> The raw sack numbers. I was also I was surprised by the sack numbers for San Francisco. Some big sack numbers. They're they're not as big as you might think. They they uh, may be deflated a bit because uh, Nick Bosa actually only had ten and a half sacks on the season. He is clearly not quite the power that he was in previous years. I'll note just for reference: Rashawn Gary had nine, Preston Smith eight, Kenny Clark had seven and a half. So our sack numbers are not actually that much different. They certainly are capable of providing the pressure, but on the season. Their defense was tied for seventh for total sacks with 48, but the Packers were just a little bit behind with 45 sacks in the season. So I don't know that there's as big of an advantage for their edge rushers in front seven compared to ours. It's just that they also do have playmaking D-backs who are capable of taking the ball away. and. We've got to be careful about that.
0: Taking a look at the Green Bay offense and the way Aaron Jones has played over the last four games, though, Neil, Aaron Jones has run the ball well and over 100 yards in the last four games. And this is something that has helped to neutralize blitzes and things like that. Can Aaron Jones help neutralize the San Francisco defense? And how is their rushing defense?
1: Their run defense was third in the NFL in yards allowed per game. They only allowed 90 rushing yards per game they had an overall stout defense. They were also third in points allowed per game on the season. So they're, they're good, but I brought this up earlier that they were often in a lead and they often faced teams that had to pass in the second half. So I do wonder whether that number may be a little bit inflated just because of situational play for that team. Obviously they're good, but do we have opportunities against this defense? I think that we do. And, If you look at the number that encourages me the most for the San Francisco defense, it's conversion percentage on third downs. San Francisco is actually 24th in the NFL this year, allowing a 41% conversion on third downs, essentially identical to the Green Bay Packers, who are 25th on defense and third down conversion percentage. They're good, but they're not good at every single thing. They've certainly had games that have been against teams that we would consider easier teams, and their record against better teams, especially since some of those teams that looked good don't look good at the end of the season, I think is something that should give us hope
2: so neil you've, you've talked about the defense and we've talked a little bit about the offense do you have anything else on the san francisco offense
1: they're just globally good right they're second in the nfl <laughs> in yards per game fourth in passing yards per game third in running yard per games third in points per game Overall, they were great as far as their offense is concerned. Second overall in total first downs. The one possible weakness that they have, on paper at least, is that they are actually 27th in number of penalty yards for their offense on the season. They had 933 penalty yards for their offense on the season. So... They are going to occasionally shoot themselves in their own dicks, And we can hope that that happens a couple times to give us a little bit more of a chance to move their offense back, to stall some drives and force them to punt maybe a couple times when they might not otherwise. They are certainly prone to that occasional mistake And I think that we can hope that that's going to be something that happens.
0: Good news. A lot of those things that you said about San Francisco, remember, we said about Dallas uh, last week as well. Now, to Dallas's credit, They peaked later in the season. They spent the first half of the season chasing Philadelphia, who started off the season 10-1 and and then won one of their last now seven games, including the postseason. They peaked early. You don't want to peak early. You want to peak late. Green Bay is clearly peaking late. The question is, is San Francisco ready to be there? Because like we said, yeah, they had a five-game winning streak and a six-game winning streak. But the last three games of the season, even though you don't have your starters in that last game, but to go one and two in your last three games, now does the bye week help you or hurt you as far as your preparedness or whatever that it factor is in getting on the field? Will the San Francisco 49ers show that they are still peaking or in the process of peaking or is Green Bay going to be riding that wave?
1: I think the key is more what do the Green Bay players do in the end? The Packers showed against Dallas that they have the ability to compete with anyone. And the return of the players that missed a lot of the season on offense, the return of the players that missed a lot of the season, or at least some significant number of games in the season on defense, those players continuing to perform at a high level is going to determine the outcome of this game. Look at Jair and what we got from Jair against Dallas. Look at what we got from Savage against Dallas. Throw in Devondre Campbell. Quay Walker missed a number of games earlier in the season. And then on offense, we got Watson back. Reed missed a couple of games. Musgrave and Kraft having those together. Jones, again, we've already talked about him, plus the evolution of all of those young players, including people like a Bo Melton or something like that. We saw obviously what Wicks did. It's going to be our players performing at the highest level, and we need to outshine those San Francisco players. If we are capable of doing that, if we perform at that level, we are going to win the game. If we allow San Francisco to take control with their offensive players, we're not going to win the game. The Packers players need to take the same attitude they took against Dallas. If they do that, I feel like we're going to have a fun day on Saturday night.
0: Let's note, again, with Dallas, while they do peak late, they have Mike McCarthy as a head coach in the postseason. Side note real quick, it was announced that he will be retained for the last year of his contract. So McCarthy coming back to Dallas. But Neil, as you noted, Kyle Shanahan is a better coach than Mike McCarthy, and now we have this Shanahan-LeFleur matchup that just has not gone in our favor at all recently. Jeff, I'm going to throw it to you here because, yeah, Jeff picked it right that Green Bay would win this game, but Jeff, you also picked, now when we did the picks, San Francisco to beat Green Bay in this matchup. Are you sticking with that?
2: Do I pick with my head or do I pick with my heart? You know what? I'm going to change my pick, John. If if I can do that, I'm going to go with Green Bay again. Why not? You know, is this 2010 all over again? Maybe. Again, young team, they don't know that they're maybe this good or that they're supposed to have pressure on them or something. They really seem to be playing for each other as well. Obviously, as we saw in the Dallas game, Matt LaFleur, his coaching has really come to the fore here, and it was it was exciting to watch. And, and every time Jordan Love got the ball in his hands, you were expecting great things. And I don't expect any less on Saturday night, frankly. They were pretty much unstoppable against Dallas. And remember, Dallas, I believe, had the number two rushing defense. Yeah, that didn't work out so well for Dallas. So, and Aaron Jones just exploited it. And and that's really what I'm hoping. So we're on a natural grass field at Levi's field. It's going to be a little bit slower surface. And I think Aaron Jones is going to have another field day. And if our defense can just play good enough, and if there are no special teams, fuck ups or at least really major ones to swing a game. And that's a huge if. Okay. I I get that. Okay. You're
0: asking a lot now. I know. (laughs)
2: I know, but from what I saw in that offense against Dallas, the only way they could stop is to pull them off the field. Literally, that's when the, the, essentially the drive stopped. So you know what? I'm going to go with Green Bay again, Saturday night, huge game. And uh, if the ratings are any anywhere similar to what they were, saturday afternoon i mean the the dallas packer game it was like over 40 million people watched that game it was huge it was the most watched game in almost a decade so yeah i I, i'm excited i think a lot of other people are going to be excited to watch this i can't wait to see what happens
1: my assessment of the game unfortunately is my head beating my heart in this game i do see the opportunities and i think one difference this week is i think that jordan love is actually the better quarterback i've reached the point that i think that he is At that level, he is better than Brock Purdy, even though I have a lot of respect for what Brock Purdy has done. I think the problem is I don't care how good our defense was against Dallas. I don't think San Francisco is going to play with the deer in the headlight. Look, I don't think that they are going to choke in the moment. I think their playmakers are just better and more experienced, less prone to choking because Mike McCarthy is is now one in three in the playoffs. There's been greater success for San Francisco in the playoffs. I think they're going to play off of that experience And it is going to be their offense overrunning our defense that is going to be the determining factor in the game. Unfortunately, I really hope I'm wrong, but it's really tough to see, given what teams have done against our defense, even though we've had our moments recently, seeing that our defense consistently being able to stop San Francisco.
0: I'm with you on the defensive side of things, too. I think four games in a row is about all that Joe Barry is good for. Uh, (laughs) The fact that we saw our defense collapse in that Giants game in particular, I think that, unfortunately, that's due to happen again. Now, if the weather becomes a factor, if it is a rainy night in San Francisco or Santa Clara, if you will, it no longer becomes Jordan Love and Brock Purdy. It becomes Aaron Jones and Christian McCaffrey, as well as our run defense versus their run defense. And with all the numbers that you've cited, I still see San Francisco with the advantage here. There's a reason they were the number one seed. And even though Green Bay is peaking late, there's a reason we were the number seven seed. We know it's a rebuilding year. We've been enjoying this ride. It's just not our year, but we will have this to build on for the next few years to come with, especially this young offense.
1: And so, John, that's a great point because we talked about the similarities between what the Packers did against Dallas and what the Packers did in 95 against the defending Super Bowl champions. And I think that this is going to be week two of that analogy where I just think we're facing a better team. We're going to lose in this game, just like we lost to the Dallas Cowboys afterwards in 95. But this can be a springboard for next year and beyond. And I again, I hope I'm wrong. I would love to see this ride continue. But it's tough to see us with an outcome that in the end is going to differ very much from – other recent playoff outcomes against san francisco
0: jeff i will tell you uh, my mom is rooting for you to be right so that my dad can call both neil and me idiots again after this show comes out and after the games are played this weekend with that said let's take a look at the rest of the wild card weekend let's see what we got right and what we got wrong you know the easy side of the the coin is the afc we botched the afc somehow uh, in our preseason picks but we did all right here in the postseason picks, other than Neil taking Miami to beat Kansas City. Neil, you kind of said it to us in the text chat, but reiterate your thoughts there. Something about Kansas City just bored with the regular season, and you got fooled by it.
1: There just are certain teams that they can't get themselves to be fully motivated to play at their best level in those regular season games after they've experienced a level of success. They are the defending Super Bowl champs, after all. And they just weren't at that same level all year, but it's always a mistake to count out a team that has proven success multiple times over the years. And they've got the muscle memory that no other team has. They've got the muscle memory to say, no, we know how to win playoff games. We will figure out a way to do it. And they've got an intimidation factor with having the best quarterback in the NFL on their side and i think the other thing though is that miami just looked completely defeated by the weather i i think that they responded much worse to the weather than i thought they were going to and that made the difference this
0: this was a game where the weather was a major factor more than any other game i've seen in a long time and you could tell in that fourth quarter the dolphin players especially the defensive players just did not want to be out there we all got cleveland wrong though holy cow the houston texans did they look good dj stroud wow He's for real. And Carolina's
2: got to be going, wow, we could have picked him, huh? <laughs> <laughs> but no, he, he was amazing. Cleveland looked sort of like Dallas. They, they were kind of discombobulated there in a number of of times in the game it, it just it did not look like their defense was strong which they were really known for and joe flacco did not have a great game and he was just kind of chucking it around i mean he was he was farvian out there almost he yeah to the, he
1: was farvian after they fell behind but they, yeah. this is exactly the I, I would argue that's the good farvian that you're not just sort of giving up on the game you're going to oh, totally try yeah. to win and and i i just think that they had cobbled together a good season. And they seemingly thought the accomplishment of finishing where they did was sufficient. And all of the things that they had to cobble together just fell apart in the playoff game. And Stroud is great. And I'm really hoping yeah. that I mean we 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 talked in the preseason about all of these great AFC quarterbacks. Well, now you've added Stroud to that as well. Yeah. Yeah. The AFC is going to be really fun to watch between all those quarterback battles, but I'm really hoping to see a couple of Stroud versus Love Super Bowls in the future. Nice. That'll be fun.
0: <laughs> right and, and and speaking yeah that's that's the example i was going to say here is houston is a young team growing as well now they're going to run into the baltimore ravens this weekend and unfortunately that probably will be it kansas city and buffalo the other matchup i think all three of us are on board with buffalo baltimore going on after that so we'll we'll keep an eye on the afc to see what happens there on the nfc side boy what a mess <laughs> so uh, well, for some of you, you know for some of us who, who were high on, on Dallas and or Philadelphia, it's not looking good. Jeff, you still got San Francisco alive, but you took the Rams over Detroit. What happened in that game that, first of all, it was 24-23 with over seven minutes left to play in that game. How did the Rams not convert on anything? How did Detroit hold on to this? What happened in that matchup? I don't know because I was
2: talking to you guys and I may or may not have had a couple cocktails.
1: I was going to say, we, we, we were all drunk after the Packers game been, like, and chatting, yeah, and no. I, you know, I don't right. think any of us have any decent analysis on Detroit against the Rams, and that's all perfectly fine because we had an absolute blast just being in packers list.
2: Last week, I, kind of, I waffled, right? Because I was kind of like, this was sort of the head hard pick. And you know what? Detroit, I've got a coworker whose husband is a huge Detroit Lions fan, and she told me literally her husband was weeping at the end of the game when they won, he just was so, I mean, this is a fan base that has just been tortured. Yeah. I'm happy for Detroit. And frankly, I think going forward, I, I think they, they beat Baker Mayfield this, this week.
0: There are people in their twenties and thirties just have not seen this kind of success in Detroit. Harken this back to our twenties, right? Green Bay in 1996, that emotional feeling that we had and the success of the Packers on the other side of that, there are a lot of older Detroit fans that have been fans of this team for, what, 60 years they've been around? And now to get this success again in their later years. I get the emotion in Detroit, and I hope they're enjoying it. I hope it doesn't last long, but I hope they're enjoying
1: it. If you are under 70 years old, you have seen at most one playoffs victory in your life. It's, It's the people over 70 that saw that 1957 championship. Other than that, it's worse than us 20s because we did have that one 1982 playoff run and you know people not much older than us remember the 60s packers and Mm -hmm. it's just a much bigger gap for the detroit lions and i am happy that they're able to enjoy some success but i would like to see detroit go another 30 years before winning a playoff game
0: all right so detroit tampa bay what's happening this weekend in that matchup. Yeah. We have to revisit this one because none of us had Detroit and Tampa Bay.
2: <laughs> no, I mean, so Detroit's at home. So Detroit gets to host another playoff game. And I, I think the electricity that was at the first one is going to be amped up even more. I think at this point, Baker Mayfield and the bucks are sort of, you know, happy to be there. Now they want to play, you know, they won the wild card weekend. I think there's going to be way too much emotion and way too much riding on this for Detroit mm. And they're going to see an NFC championship game.
1: Jeff, I mostly agree with you, but there's one difference. There are a lot of players on this Bucks team that have actually won a Super Bowl. They are not lacking in experience. And that may not be Baker Mayfield, but you look at that receiving core. You look at a lot of the players on their line. Oh, this is a team that actually does have some experience. And although I think Detroit is going to win, I think the Bucs can make it interesting, at least.
0: Yeah, this is a Tampa team that is playing well above what their expectations were for this season to win their division and and, and get this far in the playoffs. So good game lined up in Detroit for the weekend. So if we're going to revisit our picks, what do we think then for championship weekend? Are we all sticking with uh, Baltimore-Buffalo? Make it easy. Baltimore-Buffalo over on the AFC side? Yep that nodding your head makes for great radio. I I,
1: I really feel like I should apologize to Taylor Allison Swift for not having faith in her impact on Kansas city. I still think Buffalo is the better team. I still think that those weaknesses of the Kansas city receivers are going to eventually have an impact in the playoffs. And I think the fact that Patrick Mahomes is playing his first ever road playoff game will be a challenge. It's something that he is going to look forward to. I think that, Andy Reid is a superior coach. I just think this might be Buffalo's year.
0: All right. So then, in the NFC, Jeff, you already said you think Detroit is going to the NFC Championship game, and you're you're picking Green Bay at Detroit. Did I hear you correctly with that? That
2: that is correct. That wouldn't that be something?
0: <laughs> wow! It would. It yeah. would. I'll, I'm gonna. I'll go Detroit at San Francisco. Neil, what do you like coming out of this weekend on the NFC side?
1: I I think I already said Detroit and San Francisco. So I'm going to say this. I think that if the Packers beat San Francisco, Detroit's going to feel the pressure even more. And I think that we might get Tampa Bay if the Packers win. If, if, if.
0: That is a bold prediction. Excellent, Neil. And while we enjoyed the celebration of that postseason victory with Jordan Love, it was the first time in over 40 years that someone not named Aaron Rodgers or Brett Favre was the quarterback in a playoff win for Green Bay. And that leads us to our Packer player of the past.
1: Lynn Dickey is a player that those of us who are of a certain age remember very fondly for a few very glorious years of the Packer offense in what was otherwise a very dim period in Packers history. Lynn Dickey born as Clifford Lynn Dickey. So another Packers Clifford quarterback was the original number 12 for the Green Bay Packers and a player who over the course of his career, you have a large number of what ifs because of injuries. Lindicky was from Paola, Kansas, born in 1949, and he went to Osawatomie High School in Kansas. Osawatomie sounding like a town in Wisconsin. Uh, he won <laughs> the state championship in Kansas and has his high school football stadium named after him. He went to Kansas State for college and had a number of highly productive years in Kansas State. In the 1970 season, he was fourth in the Heisman Trophy voting and was the MVP of the North-South Shrine Game. His 6,208 career passing yards at Kansas State was the Kansas State record until Josh Freeman broke it in 2008. So the record for over 40 years. And when the Big Eight expanded in 1996, they named the greatest Big Eight quarterback of all time. That was Lynn Dickey. After college, Lynn Dickey was drafted by the Houston Oilers. He was drafted in a weird sort of situation because he was a third round draft pick, but the Oilers picked Dan Pastorini as the third overall pick in that draft. So the Oilers drafted two quarterbacks in their first three rounds. And that led to a competition in a situation where we've got this anointed quarterback and then this other quarterback that we're going to fight it out. Now, this was a team that had a number of bad years and Dickey did play for a number of starts in that starting time period. But it was an odd situation for a player to enter into. And in his first season, he started two games and had zero touchdowns and nine interceptions. So sort of a rough start. And in the second season, he was competing with Dan Pastorini. And he had an event occur, which unfortunately was a signature of his career, and that he had a broken hip during a preseason game and ended up being in the hospital for a month. After that injury. So during the time in the hospital, he went from 210 pounds down to 170 pounds. This is a situation that's obviously extremely devastating to come back from. One of the things that Lynn Dickey was known for was his grit. He just wasn't going to allow pain or anything else to get in his way. So although he missed that entire 1972 season, he was back and ready for the 1973 season. And he w- made four starts in that 73 season. He had only a one in three record, but that one win was actually the only win for the Houston Oilers in that season. And although he had six touchdowns against 10 interceptions, that was better than Dan Pastorini's Five touchdowns against 17 interceptions <laughs> different game at that point uh, unfortunately by the time 1974 came around Dan Pastorini started to take a little bit of control Dickey did start four games but uh, not a lot of impact and then in 1975 he had zero starts the Oilers went to 10 and 4 that season and Dan Pastorini was established as the starting quarterback for the Houston Oilers and after that 1975 season, the Packers were in a desperate situation for quarterback, as they seemingly were for a very long time. They had John Hadel the previous year at age 35. John Hadel had a season in which he had six touchdowns and 21 interceptions. We need an improvement on John Hadle. And so the Packers traded John Hadel, Ken Ellis, and a couple of later draft picks to the Houston Oilers for Lynn Dickey so Lynn Dickey started with the Green Bay Packers in the 1976 season now when he
0: comes to Green Bay in 1976 I I think you're going to notice this deal he was not wearing number 12 or he couldn't there was a guy on the team playing quarterback named Don Milan Milan the prior year had one start for the Packers was in the mix at the quarterback in in that prior season he's wearing number 12 so Lynn Dickey in that first season in his first I believe four seasons
1: wore number 10 10 is a good number. 10 is a good number for a Packers quarterback. And let's hope that that magic continues. In that 1976 season, Lynn Dickey started 10 games at a four and six record, but his injury problems continued. He had a separated shoulder followed by an infection. And so he only ended up playing 10 games in that year. Uh, he won four of the five games the Packers won that year, but not a season that he could complete. But 1977 was the real season that was truly devastating as far as the trajectory of Lynn Dickey's career. So Lynn Dickey, he started the year as the starting quarterback and he was two and seven as a starting quarterback with Bob well, five touchdowns, 14 interceptions. He had a few wins. This is a bad team, right? We're talking now in the third year of the Bart Starr era, we're dealing with the cost of all of the draft capital that we had traded. For example, for John Hadel, all of the failed draft picks, we didn't have a lot of talent on the team but he was certainly working with what he had. But in a game against the Rams in November of that year, he suffered a injury in which both his fibia and fibula were shattered in that game. And that caused him to miss the rest of 77. It caused him to miss all of 78 and caused him to miss most of that 1979 season. And I think all of us remember sort of that initial possibility as far as Lynn is concerned. And then it's like, wow, we, we don't have Lynn So We're going to go with the David Whitehurst or whatever. But the magnitude of that injury cannot be understated as far as the impact on his career. We talk about Larry McCarron's finger. After that injury, Lynn Dickey's left ankle pointed out at a 90-degree angle. Just a, a brutal sort of injury required seven total surgeries. And they eventually put a metal rod into his leg in order to help heal. That was after a couple of failed attempts. So he missed that entire 1978 season. And the 78 season is one we've talked about a lot it was the first year of James Lofton, we went eight seven and one. On the other hand, David Whitehurst, who was the starting quarterback that year, was certainly not a stellar quarterback, and you could see why we we're going to have regression. Whitehurst 10 touchdowns to 17 interceptions in that 78 season. 79 season comes along, and Lynn Dickey is still not able to start the year. He ended up only playing a couple of games at the end of that 1979 season, only three games in the 79 season, but was starting to show a little bit more uh, as far as where the potential was and why Packers should be excited about him over David Whitehurst. Now, he played three games in 79, but he didn't have the rod removed from his leg until prior to the 1980 season. Just imagine essentially three years to recover from those injuries before you're actually ready to go as a human being.
0: I want Jeff to comment about rods and legs, Jeff. (laughs) How long? Is that a long time to have a rod in your leg?
2: And this was a long time ago. This was a little more, I would say, draconian. I don't know. I can't imagine being a professional athlete and you know, shattering your leg that bad and then going through rehab essentially for for years in order to come back. So I mean, what that what you know, what that says about Lindickey is just the amount of pain that he would have had to endure, the amount of just Little baby steps, literally, right, to get back, to be a professional athlete, to regain that strength, to regain the muscle, to regain the weight and somewhat of the flexibility and or speed. What a Herculean task.
0: And and the fact that he came back from that and he was good when he came back. The other thing with coming back from that, Jeff, is Lynn Dickey himself felt he needed some kind of a change, right? We talked about superstitions in not just fans, but players have them as well. He had wanted to wear number 12 when he came to Green Bay. He had been wearing 10 or he had been assigned 10, right? He's got a couple of seasons there where he's not playing. But he talks to the offensive coordinator, Zeke Berkowski. They talk to Bart Starr about him changing numbers. Now, Zeke in his last season in Green Bay in 1971 wore number 12. Maybe he had a soft spot for the number. Len Dickey said, Hey, I want to go back to my number 12 that I like. Can I change numbers? They allowed him. And the 1980 season, Neil comes around. Lynn Dickey comes out wearing number 12. And like Jeff said, he is better like the bionic man. We will build him better. We will build him stronger. And that's exactly what happened
1: with Lynn Dickey in that 1980 season. Lynn Dickey started all 16 games for the Packers. And yes, they still have the talent deficit, but Len Dickey, through For 58% completion in that 1980 season at age 31, mind you, after joining the Packers at age 26, wow. had 15 touchdowns. And most importantly, he started to develop a connection with James Lofton. Lofton having 71 receptions, 1,226 yards that year. That was James Lofton's first 1,000-yard season. And that was the thing that was pointing us towards the possibilities of the Packers for the future. 1981 season was a step up as far as the Packers' record was concerned. Dickey still missed three games that year. But the Packers actually moved to 8-8 and in that 1981 season. Again, James Lofton with a 1,294-yard season, eight, eight touchdowns on the year. But we also had Paul Kaufman with four touchdowns, and John Jefferson was traded from the San Diego Chargers, the Packers, in the middle of that year, and he also had four touchdowns for that year. So they were building up a very potent offense. Dickey was getting the experience that he really never had up until that point in his career, and 1982 is when this started to really shine. In that 82 season, that was a strike season. There were only nine games in the season, but Lynn Dickey threw with a 57% completion percentage, and the Packers were good enough in order to make the expanded 16-team playoffs in that 1982 season. And for Packers fans of our age, this is the first time we will have remembered the Packers (laughs) being in the playoffs since it was a really exciting time after sort of coming close in 78. Now we had the Packers in the playoffs, and my parents had two season tickets, and they decided... Yeah, we're going we're gonna to let our kid Neil go to this playoffs game. And so that was the first playoffs game that I ever attended was the the Packers against the St. Louis Cardinals, the St. Louis Cardinals in that 1982 <laughs> season. And it was a masterclass of offensive play by that Green Bay Packer team after having suffered as a Packers fan to that point. They absolutely annihilated the St. Louis Cardinals. They had a 41-16 final score in that game, equivalent to a score in the Packers-Cowboys game, a score I was very excited by. (laughs) Lynn Dickey in that game was 17 of 23 for 260 yards, four touchdowns, and zero interceptions. He had a 150.4 quarterback rating. That was the best Packers playoff quarterback rating ever until Jordan Love beat it just last week. John Jefferson was the receiving star of the game with 148 yards and two touchdowns. James Lofton had a touchdown, and Eddie Lee Ivory also had a receiving touchdown. But in addition to by traditional quarterback rating, by DVOA, that game was the greatest Packers quarterbacking game ever, regular season or postseason, with a plus 155%. Again, beaten by Jordan Love last week with a plus 190%. So there was some talk about lindicky in that 82 season during and after the game against Dallas. And he's certainly a player that should be remembered fondly because he took some pretty dismal teams and made the Packers exciting for a brief period in our youth.
0: Neil, I really appreciate how fondly and vividly you remember that playoff game because I can tell you that so we're 12 years old at the time right at the time I probably didn't understand or didn't appreciate it as much other than to say well this was a weird season with the strike (laughs) and that Green Bay was able to get into the playoffs they were able to get a playoff game and it was in Green Bay being 12 years old you don't understand that excitement of what it was like again probably because we lived on the east side of town as well as opposed to on the west side by the stadium but the fact that you remember it so well makes me excited for saying, wow,
1: that's right. We were part of that. It was, it was magical. And I still remember just the, just raw excitement. As much as anything, I remember just the raw excitement of being a fan that game in a way that I had never felt before at a Packers game or watching the Packers on TV. Unfortunately, we immediately lost the following week to Dallas. Yeah. You know, we were a team that was only five, three and one that year. We wouldn't have even made the playoffs if not for the expanded playoffs Dallas beat us. They subsequently lost in the NFC championship game to the Washington Redskins, who won the title that year. Lynn Dickey in that divisional round game against Dallas, 19 of 36, 332 yards. He chucked it one touchdown, but three interceptions. And it was just not the Packers game. The Packers had deficiencies, obviously, and those deficiencies were really emphasized in the following season when the Packers also finished 8-8, eight and eight, but the Packers had one of the greatest offensive seasons in Packers history. Lynn Dickey was 289 for 40 for 60% completion percentage, 4,000. 458 passing yards in that season. That is still the second best passing yards total in Packers history, only beaten by Aaron Rodgers in 2011. He had 32 touchdowns, led the NFL. Those passing yards also led the NFL 9.2 yards per temp. That is a ridiculous number of yards per temp for a quarterback. That is somebody who's clearly at the top of their game. Now, unfortunately also had 29 interceptions with which also led the NFL. But it was an exciting year just because we had all of these offensive weapons. The Packers were fifth in the NFL in scoring that year. They were second in total yards in the NFL that year. But unfortunately, our defense truly stunk. Our defense had allowed the most yards in the NFL that year. Our defense allowed more points. They allowed more yards than our offense was capable of doing. Well, that's how you end up with an 8-8 and season. But the most magical game that year and possibly the most magical NFL regular season game I've ever attended was against the Washington Redskins in week seven. We were playing the defending Super Bowl champions, Joe Gibbs, Joe Theismann. They're the Super Bowl champs. And I was at that game. Jeff was at this game. And it was just a pure shootout. It was pure chaos as far as both teams were concerned. There was no defense whatsoever. It was down, back, (laughs) down, back, down, back, down, back. And even in the third quarter, your thought was whatever team has the ball last They're going to win the game. Lynn Dickey, 22 of 31, 387 yards, three touchdowns, and an interception. Kaufman, Lofton, Jefferson, and Mike Mead all got involved in that game. And Gary Ellis also had 105 receiving yards in that game. Unfortunately, again, our defense was not able to do anything to stop them. And when the Packers scored their final points, it was a 20-yard field goal by Jan Stenerud. And this seemed to portend bad things. We should have scored a touchdown there. We only got the field goal. The field goal gave us a 48-47 lead. But Joe Theismann still had a minute 19 in order to move down. And sure enough, Joe Theismann gets the ball, and it seemed that we could do nothing to stop them. They go all the way down to field goal range, and they've got the previous year's MVP of the league, Mark Mosley, setting up to kick a field goal to win the game. Mark Mosley, as a kicker, was MVP in the strike season. He missed zero field goals the entire year. The field goal was being kicked right at me, and it was really close to the upright, really high, such that the people around me could not tell for sure whether it was made or not. We were required to see the reactions of fans elsewhere to know whether that field goal was made or not. And then it was absolute pure bedlam. Again, just I've never experienced a regular season game that was so magical. And obviously this is partly because of my youth, but this taught me what live football could be. It told me where the real highs of the NFL are. And I think that my fandom really grew and has developed because of the foundations from that game. So
2: we were both there. We were both youths. And it was a Monday night game, and it was late. The game was back and forth. It was exciting. I know from my vantage point, I couldn't tell. So it was sort of like that swell, right? You, you couldn't, because I didn't have the right angle. I couldn't tell if it, if it was, if the, the final field goal was good or not. But just sort of the roar of the crowd as it, as it kind of came around. And, you know, knowing, obviously, with the home crowd roaring like that, that he clearly missed that was the first game that i had ever been to so i picked a hell of a game to go to on that but it, it was yes for all those things neil said it was memorable it was exciting and this is when green bay was was really looking for because it was a monday night game they didn't get on monday night football very often they were re- really looking for respect and just kind of to find their place and and this really helped because it was a national stage obviously and it was defending super bowl champions and it was a exciting game and one of the most high scoring and stood for a long time as a high scoring monday night football game ever all those things it was a blast and lynn dickey had a hell of a game as well didn't he
0: in that season if i recall correctly that we ended up 8 and 8. There were some preseason predictions of the Green Bay Packers being able to get into the playoffs and get to the Super Bowl, and that was a testament to the strength of that offense, bringing in John Jefferson, you know, I remember them bringing the high five to town. I mean, high fiving was the thing when we were 12, 13-year-old kids, right? That was awesome. And then and with Dicky and Kaufman and the players that Neil has mentioned, it was, you know, in these formative years for us watching football, a
1: great season. Unfortunately, the Packers did not make the playoffs that year. The defense foundered. Bart Starr was fired at the end of that 1983 season. They hired a Packers legend who had taken the Cincinnati Bengals to the Super Bowl. Forrest Gregg is the head coach. Forrest Gregg had a more tough nosed approach to football. Lynn Dickey's play never reached the level again that it did in that 1983 season. He started two more years for the Green Bay Packers, put up reasonable numbers, but again nothing that ever approached what he did in 1983 and then he retired after that 1985 season. But Lynn Dickey did have an impact as far as the total numbers for Packers quarterbacks and in his career he had 21,369 passing yards. That is still the fourth most passing yards in Packers history. At the time he retired, it was the second most just behind Bart Starr at 24,000 passing yards. As far as passing touchdowns were concerned, Lynn Dickey had 133 when he retired. He was only 19 passing touchdowns behind Bart Starr at 152, obviously passed since then by Rodgers and Favre. But Lynn Dickey is still fourth in all time passing touchdowns by a Packers quarterback Lynn Dickey when he retired was first in Packers history for interceptions thrown he's now second behind Favre hey you've got to be a really good quarterback to throw that many interceptions (laughs) well he was good for a couple years and that was good (laughs) enough and the Packers weren't great as well I the Lynn Dickey certainly the real question are the what ifs what if he had not missed essentially four seasons in his first nine years due to injury. What if he had not had those horrible injuries? What if he'd been able to develop normally as a quarterback should have, he clearly had a mentality that was a winning mentality. He was a beloved quarterback for the Packers during that time. And it was great during the Packers Dallas game to hear Lynn Dickey's name mentioned again by commentators.
0: And with as good as that 1983 offense was on the defensive side with apologies to Johnny gray, and Ezra Johnson, and John Anderson, and even a rookie, Tim Lewis, that defense was shit. And there's a reason for that, Jeff. So give us a history lesson of why the defense maybe floundered a little bit in the early 80s.
2: So this is kind of a two-for-one, being that we are coming up to play San Francisco. So I'm going to give a brief history of San Francisco 49ers and how in the late 70s and early 80s, the San Francisco 49ers built their 80s dynasty through the draft and how Green Bay was a a really, really big part of that, as it turns out. So the San Francisco 49ers franchise began in 1946 as charter members of the All-America Football Conference, merging with the NFL in 1949, and they are the 10th oldest franchise. They did not see much playoff or championship success early on and through the 60s, unlike Green Bay. The dawn of the 70s saw some success for the 49ers with three straight playoff appearances from 70 to 72. Unfortunately, in the playoffs, the 49ers were defeated in each of those three seasons by the Dallas Cowboys. San Francisco quickly slipped back into mediocrity, or worse, for the rest of the decade. It wasn't until Bill Walsh was hired in 1979 that the fortunes of the 49ers would begin to look up. Walsh was hired after a dreadful 1978 season in which Sam Fran finished 2-14. and It was the selections in the 1979 draft that would help propel the 49ers to dynastic success. In that draft, San Francisco picked Notre Dame QB Joe Montana in the third round, 82nd overall, and much later, Clemson wide receiver Dwight Clark in the 10th round, 249th overall. The 1980 season for San Francisco saw some progress with a 6-10 record, but it was the 49er defense that was problematic, surrendering 415 points that year after giving up 416 points the prior year. It seemed like they needed a playmaker on defense, a future Hall of Famer that would dominate and strike fear in opposing offenses. Enter the Green Bay Packers. In 1980, Green Bay stumbled to a 5-10-1 record, good for the sixth overall pick in the 1981 draft. The 49ers, with their improved 6-10 record, were slated to draft eighth. Now, the Green Bay defense, much like the 49ers, was in search of a playmaker. However, both teams figured a linebacker by the name of Lawrence Taylor would not be available by the time their number came up, and indeed, he was drafted second. Instead, the Packers were looking at a promising defensive back from USC. In fact, Green Bay was so interested in him that after his first workout failed to impress secondary coach Ross Fickner, he and his girlfriend were flown to Green Bay a few days before the draft to meet and have dinner with Coach Bart Starr, personnel director Dick Corrick, and their wives. By all accounts, the dinner went well, and Corrick thought they had their man. Unfortunately... Due to input from Fickner, as well as pressure from other position coaches, Bart Starr made the decision to not pick the defensive back from USC and instead picked Cal quarterback Rich Campbell with that sixth overall pick. USC defensive back Ronald Mandel Lott was selected by the 49ers with the eighth overall pick and started every game in 1981 as a rookie. Ronnie Lott had 89 tackles, 7 interceptions, of which 3 were pick 6s, and 2 fumble recoveries on his way to a Super Bowl title that year, as well as 3 more in the 80s, and a 14-year Hall of Fame career. He is tied for 8th overall in league history with 63 career interceptions, interestingly with Darren Sharper. The 49ers also retired his number 42 qb rich campbell on the other (laughs) hand uh, appeared in just just
0: just call this part the beef swellington Jeff, go for (laughs) it
2: indeed john so here here are rich campbell's numbers such as they are he appeared in seven games zero starts in his four-year career all with green bay overall He was 31 of 68 for 386 yards, three touchdowns, and nine interceptions in the five games in which he attempted a pass. Now, here's where things get really... Sorry,
1: sorry, let me just clarify this. Ronnie Lott had more touchdowns in his first year with San Francisco than Rich Campbell as a quarterback had in his entire career with the Packers.
2: That is a correct statement, Neil, yes. But wait, there's more. Incredibly, even after the Packers made their second round pick in 1981 of tight end Gary Lewis, there were still three Hall of Fame defensive players left on the board. Mike Singletary, who is picked number 38, Howie Long, picked number 48, and Ricky Jackson picked 51st. Yikes. So, as Neil documented, if Ronnie Lott had been on that 83 Packer team, maybe the fortunes would have been different. I don't know. But fortunately for Green Bay, the selection of QB Jordan Love in the first round has turned out much better for the organization than the selection of Rich Campbell. All of Love's talents will be needed this weekend in order to upset the 49ers on Saturday night.
0: and And that... How you noted that 81 draft, Jeff, is a testament to the culture change that would happen 10 years later in yes. Green Bay. Getting football people into this program, getting to a point where you know you need defense, the draft became an entirely different thing eventually for the better, which is good news. But yeah, you look at that 81 draft, and they had Dicky recovering, as Neil noted. David Whitehurst is in camp. He's not terrible He's serviceable. I can see wanting a quarterback, but there were literally no quarterbacks in that 81 draft that amounted to anything, save for maybe a few good seasons out of Wade Wilson in Minnesota. And knowing that you needed defense. And then as you noted, boy, the fact that you could have gotten Ronnie Lott and Mike Singletary in the same draft in 1981. Uh I'm going to just cry myself to sleep thinking
2: about (laughs) that one. It it isn't it's mind-boggling but like you you yes. hit the nail on the head right when san francisco hired bill walsh he was a football guy they started building through the draft that's how they built it and became a dynasty in the 80s and ironically you know when ron wolf hired you know a guy from san francisco right mike holmgren almost right it was like deja vu all over again except for the packers so but it was just you look at that draft and just what could have been and just the the wasted picks and just like holy cows, but you know what? I, I thought it was fascinating. But just and and the other thing that I where Bart Starr really didn't want to kind of rock the boat. He didn't want to upset the position coaches, so he listened to the position coaches, even if they, well, frankly, were wrong or off base against certain players. It appeared to be racial bias within the position some of the position coaches and things like that and when they were they reported to star then and bart again sort of didn't want to rock the boat so he listened to them instead of maybe picking the best guy we were mitered in mediocrity
0: for a while because of the way this played out now we could spend hours on flawed packers drafts we could also probably spend hours on the Connections between the Green Bay Packers and the San Francisco four-day diners. As you noted, Jeff, when Holmgren comes into town under that Bill Walsh tree, we don't need to go that route. We just need to worry about Saturday night, Green Bay heading to San Francisco. We've already made our predictions, but your final thoughts for this episode.
2: Well, John, as I said earlier, I'm picking this game with my heart. I'm hoping for an exciting Packer win I would love to see the Packers in the NFC championship game. There's a bunch of other statistics about the Packers in the playoffs, and it's just amazing how many games they've played and how good they've been in the playoffs. And I would certainly like to see them build on the legacy, a young legacy. And I'm hoping that we see this build, not only this year, but as we've talked about in the, into future years, great building blocks and a foundation uh, for the future But man, I'm hoping they can pull this out Saturday night. (laughs) Go Pack.
1: History doesn't matter in any given football game. It doesn't matter what happened between the Packers and the 49ers in the 90s or in the aughts or earlier in this century. All that matters is the two teams that are facing one another on Saturday evening. And we have seen the improvement of this team. And Jordan Love has become one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL over the second half of the season. And we put the ball in Jordan Love's hands, complimented, of course, with Aaron Jones. But we've got the possibility of having great things happen. And I'm going to choose two statistics to emphasize that. First, Jordan Love in the past two weeks on third down has been 11 of 14, one of those incompletions, a drop, 138 yards, a 147.3 quarterback rating three touchdowns and 11 first downs. That is every single completion on third down by Jordan love has been a first down. That is a quarterback that is rising to the moment. He is showing himself to be one of the greats in the NFL. The other thing is I like DVOA. I have not talked about DVOA a lot over the course of the season. And that's because while the first half of the season stunk and that weighted down our DVOA numbers on the year, but Weighted DVOA places greater emphasis on the most recent games. And the Packers have really risen in weighted DVOA over the last few weeks. Prior to last week, they were still only 12th in rated DVOA. They have moved up to second in the NFL in weighted DVOA behind San Francisco at the second position. Our offense is just slightly behind San Francisco, second in the NFL in weighted DVOA. And uh, I'm not going to talk about our defense, but... (laughs) Overall, the DVOA numbers say that we are not a seventh seed that just snuck in. We are not a team that's lucky to be in the playoffs. We are one of the best teams remaining in these playoffs. We've got a chance to go out there. Those players have a chance to make their own names known and part of the Packers' legacy. I want to see this team do it. I'm really excited about the potential. I'm really excited about this specific game on Saturday night. Go Pack Go.
0: And one of the things we forgot to mention in episode 69 is it was our first postseason victory since starting the GBC Podcast. (laughs) All right. If you're watching us on YouTube, please hit subscribe, leave us a comment, find the GBC Podcast at Green Bay Chat. That's all one word, Green Bay Chat. We are on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. On Facebook, it's the GBC Podcast. Slash Green Bay chat, and may you fully appreciate the magnitude of your impending good fortune. Thanks for joining us. Good night. Go, Pacco. Go.